0: Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. My name is Tom, you may know me as the creator of Like Stories of Old, and I'm joined by my fellow video essayist, Thomas Flight, to talk about Danny Boyle's Sunshine. Before we begin, Cinema of Meaning is a Nebula original podcast, meaning that on Nebula, you can listen to all of our episodes ad-free and a week early, and you'll also get access to a monthly bonus episode. Last month, that was David Fincher's Fight Club, Be sure to use our personal link in the show notes to get a $20 discount on a yearly subscription. I also want to give a quick shout out to our Discord server, where we discuss movies with our listeners and take the occasional suggestion. If you want to join our little community, the link for that is also in the show notes. Now back to the show. Thomas, this was your first time watching Sunshine, right? That's right, yes. What was your first impression of it? I was
1: interested going into this one. I'd heard a bit about it here and there. I think Mm -hmm. I had even seen bits. I didn't remember uh, enough that it was spoiled as I was watching it, but there were certain moments in this movie that popped up, and I was like, oh, I saw somebody talk about that in in an essay once or, or something. Probably me. I, that that, <laughs> might, be, that might be where. where,
0: where. <laughs> Both in and out of context.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I've I definitely seen it referenced in places or, or people talk about it. So mm. I was curious to um, check it out. I'm also, you know, a fan of some of Alex Garland's uh, writing, some of his movies. Um, and it's Danny Boyle. So I was pretty interested going in. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I think it explores a lot of interesting ideas. It goes kind of bonkers mm-hmm. in the third act in a way that maybe predictably is appealing to me, perhaps you could say, based on my love of certain movies that go wild towards the end. So there's a lot of elements mm-hmm. of this that I um, really enjoyed. There was a lot of stuff that also felt kind of a little messy to me, and I got tripped up a little bit. Like I try When I watch a movie like this, I try to really let myself get engaged in just the story as it is and not be too tripped up by, like, sci-fi elements that maybe don't quite, like, play. But I did get tripped up a little bit by what I would describe as, like, some of the wonky space mechanics.
0: I mean, like, the, the airlock scene or something like that? Or There's not a lot of moments where they are actually out in space, like in out space. Of the spacecraft. Yeah, you know? yeah,
1: it's more like, you know, the way things are moving in space, I don't know. It's just like there was just enough moments where it's not that like it was unbelievable. It was more like I felt like some of the stakes or what exactly was happening was not defined clearly enough that I got caught up in the suspense. Instead, I was a little bit confused about what was actually happening, Mm -hmm. uh, which might be more on me than on the movie. I don't you know, I don't know. There was moments where I was like, I feel like the movie's like trying to get me to be like what's what's gonna happen uh but instead I was like what's happening uh (laughs) which is not quite I I think what it was going for but I think it's like I think there's a lot of elements that are really beautiful some really cool ideas that are explored so this is one of those movies I would slot into the category of like doing really interesting things in kind of a messy
0: way but but you did like the third act you said I think that's one of the main criticisms of this movie that's holding it back from uh, being hailed as the science fiction masterpiece, is that it just becomes more of a slasher film towards the end. and Right. Which yeah. I sort of feel the same way about. Yeah. We'll get into that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It almost got progressively more messy and interesting to me simultaneously. Like the problems mm-hmm. got compounded and the bits of it that I thought were interesting also increased if that makes any sense yeah i would say i really like the first and the third act Hmm. even though the third act was the most messy i think i don't know we 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 can get into all of that but i'm also just interested to kind of like discuss some of the ideas that are being presented here the implications yeah what about you though you are revisiting it now did you how did you feel about it when you watched it before and how do you feel about it now
0: this is i was going to say was but it still is one of my favorite science fiction movies i think it's because it's just so visually evocative like i don't think there's any other movie about space that truly captures the sheer force that can be found there like you know there's obviously here the power of the sun but i often think about like in When you really think about space, the kind of dynamics that are at play there, like you have black holes like swallowing entire universes, there's stars exploding and stuff. There's all this drama and spectacle happening on a scale that's just so far beyond our comprehension. And I've often thought about how do you even begin to capture that in a way that conveys that in its proper grandeur. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because the difficulty is when you want to have that human perspective, when you want to portray it from a a human being, from a more subjective lens, then it's it's just too big, too fully. A human being is just too small to serve as a contrast to whatever is happening out there. But at the same time, if you zoom out to a point where it does, you can get it all in, into frame, so to say. Then again, it loses that scale because there's no more anchoring point or there's no point of reference that is any way relatable for uh, when it comes to size. You know, there's a lot of those videos on YouTube where you see the size of the moon and then the size of Earth and then it scales up increasingly to the point where the first 10 planets or so or first stars just become these tiny dots and the whole comparison essentially becomes, almost becomes meaningless just because of the sheer size difference and so i think that's something that every space movie has to grapple with to some degree at least any space movie that wants to depict the the smallness of humanity against the grandeur of the cosmos and i think sunshine is one of the movies that does this there's a lot of little details like we're introduced to searle i think cliff curtis's character he is w- observing the sun, and then it's immediately revealed, over oh, only seeing the sun at 2% of the full brightness. And then right. he's like, can we can we bump that up to 4 or something? And then, <laughs> right. you know, the, the computer says, you know, you'll basically be you'll be blinded. And there's obviously the later sequences where they go out to fix the shield. And then, uh, I, I don't know, I just love the way they manage to depict the power of the sun, even when you're just getting glimpses of it, which yeah. is such force that it just it really puts everything else into deep appropriate or at least as as far as cinema will allow you know the appropriate uh perspective there's one other scene that i'll I'll mention here and that's the scene where they watch mercury passing across Mm -hmm. the sun which feels like a pretty purposeful scene or like a, a kind of a purposeless scene with regards to that it doesn't Progress the plot in any significant way. It's one of my favorite little moments from this movie, actually, because it's it's such a nice, quiet moment so early on in the film, and it, it again it shows it you know against this giant fiery ball that we can even that we cannot even look at like an entire planet is but this tiny black uh, dot, and even though it's Mercury, it actually you know it makes you think about oh wait you know Earth is also just one of those tiny little specks against this force that we're now moving towards and that, you know, that's at the center of this universe. And I think it's a very effective scene at also helping you set those comparisons or set those, what's the word I'm looking the for? here? Yeah. Scale. scale. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that, that I think is what the, this movie does very effectively, especially in that first half. It's continuously in various ways, contrasting the sun as this giant literally, you know, incomprehensibly large force that these tiny human beings are up against and that our entire planet actually is is almost nothing compared to. And uh, yeah, I think that I, I cannot really think of any other movie that does it quite like Sunshine does.
1: I don't know if it, it never does, but I can't remember a single frame where it shows like kind of the type of image you're describing where the sun is tiny and like, The spaceship is like this little blip moving towards a sun that's like small in the frame. Like until, spoilers, until we see the sun from Earth at the end, you know, it's like almost always completely enveloping the entire screen or a big portion of Mm -hmm. it or something like that. Or we're seeing it from inside the ship and it's just like it feels constantly like not a tiny warm Mm -hmm. object in the sky that... Shines light down on us, like the perspective we get it from. It feels like this massive, you know, like pit of fire that they're just kind of dropping mm. into the entire time.
0: Yeah. There's a little Baden switch at the beginning where you do see a little tiny sunshine, or it, that's how it appears. And then it looks like it zooms in, but then it turns out it's not the sun, but it's actually the reflection of the sun oh, yes. of the spacecraft. And then we kind of pan into the other direction. And that's when the true force of the sun is revealed. And and the spacecraft is obviously becomes increasingly tinier in in comparison to it. Yeah, I wish this
1: is one I wish I would have been able to see in Mm -hmm. theaters, you know, watching it. I have a pretty Mm -hmm. decent sized TV at home. But just like this is a movie that would benefit from those scenes where if the sun is enveloping the characters, it would really feel like it was just like enveloping the theater or you. You'd need the uh, sunglasses over on top of your yeah, yeah, 3D. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that little viewing room almost has like a very theatrical kind of feeling to it where you just sit in there and, mm-hmm. and look into the sun. I love that that's something they that established kind of early on with Cyril, where there's this like almost metaphysical like quality to looking into the sun, which is, you know, something that we have kind of on Earth even that, you know, there's people Mm -hmm. who have beliefs about looking into the sun, having like health benefits or, you know, obviously the worship of the sun is is like historically a thing, but uh, it was fun to see that kind of updated in this way where I love how the fear of sort of what they're headed towards and the all are kind of held in tandem simultaneously. And Mm -hmm. the connection of those two things are kind of, palpable that's where like i really was feeling the sort of alex garland kind of uh influence here that's something i think he really is interested in exploring just like knife's edge right on which something is like both terrifying
0: and awe-inspiring at the same time Mm -hmm. there's also definitely that religious angle there where you know the the sun is as you said, historically, also at the source or of, uh, or has been a source of worship and in many ways inspired or informed uh, many of the religions that we still have today and that they gave their own twist to, but uh, that essentially started with worshipping of the sun. And it's, I think, you know, I don't think this movie is a literal metaphor or an allegory, uh, in the sense that the sun literally means God, but it does invoke some of the same dynamics where we have this force that gives us all of our life you know sun gives life and then life looks back onto the sun trying to figure out what it is and why and what what the purpose of it all is and at the same time you know it gives warmth it gives life it gives uh, it gives life it gives beauty but at the same time you cannot stare directly at it because you'll hurt yourself and that's obviously that that's what I like about Searle throughout the movie he gets like these blisters and he, gets, <laughs> yeah. he tries to push it like a little bit more every time and he gets hurt a little bit time every time um, he does so but I just like the idea that something that has this longing to connect to something that powerful while at the same time knowing that a true connection with that kind of source would also mean total self-destruction like that cannot go those two go hand in hand they cannot be separated from each other yeah and i feel like in many kind of a stretch there maybe but to some extent i think that's also how a lot of religious people relate to god i think whereas you know it's at the same time all beauty but at the same time also all powerful like there's no individual human that at least not in the body cannot can encompass the fullness of god without that meaning some kind of destruction of the flesh or you know right. that's something that can only happen in, in the spiritual realm that's not something that can happen within earthly confines and to me at least that's, it seems like there's a lot of parallels there with the way the sun is depicted and especially also with thrill's character what he how he relates to the sun uh you know how that relates to uh, religion yeah,
1: yeah. No, I think, I mean, I think uh, that connection is definitely there. I I would mm. assume, you know, based on some of Garland's other work that he's kind of doing that intentionally uh, to some extent. And yeah. like, I couldn't, I couldn't quote you the verses, but the the idea of like, looking at the face of God would essentially kill you or destroy you in some way is pretty explicit in Christianity. And mm. I, I would imagine it probably appears in some other Um, religions although I'm less familiar there's a very mystical concept that involves like like seeing something fully for what it is going hand in hand with some kind of destruction or annihilation or death or you know and that's not like this movie we can get more into it maybe once we get into discussing the end doesn't explore that very explicitly like they don't step back Mm -hmm. and like Talk about in exposition like what's what happens if you look into the sun too much and it makes you go insane or something we see that there's some kind of weird thing happening around these things. I kind of like that that just sort of like is there it doesn't set up in this very like explicit way that it, it, it just kind of like a subtext or not a subtext. Yeah, you know, it's more of like a B storyline plot to the overarching arc of what's happening.
0: The interesting thing is that every character has their own seems to have their own way of relating to the sun which I think right. is an interesting way that this movie portrays that, that that different kind of dynamic basically to the essence of life you know everyone has uh, we cannot help but develop some kind of relation to existence in that most cosmic sense and you know with Searle, I think we have the more spiritual side this side that it's kind of, let looks upon the sun as this godlike force that you want to connect with, even though it hurts or even though it withers you way. And that is ultimately a humbling force. Like, I like his character for being, you know, very, I was going to say down to earth, but that's not quite correct. But he is still somewhat grounded within his human confines. Yeah, he's the one who recognizes, uh, you know, we're only stardust and we can only hope to get a glimpse of that whatever bigger force there is out there and uh, whereas later on we meet pinbacker the former captain I think it was from the other crew and he is also very much in this you know very much went down this spiritual path he also has this very uh, explicitly religious connection to the sun which he literally compares to god but he, instead of him being humbled by it, he develops a sort of grandiosity that he's now the last man alone with God and it's, it's wrong for us to do anything about his will and which ends up in all kinds of uh, violence and destruction. And so that to me was something that I always found very interesting about this film. So we have these two spiritual connections that both lead to very different paths and very different belief systems. And on the other side too, that's the more non-spiritual slash atheist, uh, perspectives, you know, you have the atheist perspectives and they too have different outcomes in how right. they, uh, lead to various, uh, qualities or virtues. You know, you have, uh, I think most notably there's, uh, Harvey's character, the one who ends up being the comms officer on a ship without communication. Or me, without means for communication, and he, he, he kind of comes across as a very sober guy, spiritually speaking. Like, uh, but he ends up also ends up being sort of scared by the sun, or being scared by the weight of existence, and the weight of existence. And he's the one who ultimately ends up faltering in this in the mission because he's he isn't able to muster up the courage to be truly self-sacrificial when he has to. Right. Whereas on the other side we also have Mace and Kappa, who are also both atheist, I think I would say, you know, Kappa has a very clearly a uh, I'm not sure not sure mathematical is the right, you know, phys- like if he has a physicist's perspective very clearly, but he sort of uses that to invoke his own sense of beauty from it. He explains how the bomb works and how to bend space and time and. He describes it as being beautiful and that fills him with courage and hope. And Mace too, he doesn't really, I think Mace is just the most pragmatic guy of them all. He's actually, uh, this is the guy who was played by uh, Chris Evans. This was actually one of my favorite characters uh, every time I watched him. I just love his direct and down-to-earth Attitudes. I did.
1: Uh, did like him in this. He feels like to me he's deriving the most meaning from the sacrifice itself. If that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think that yeah. that is a
0: fair uh, assessment? I think. I think in his own way he is the most selfless. Even though he's not without, like he has like some he, some anger issues. Like he's brawling with Kappa at some right, point, right. and then later he does it again. But I, I admire him from being selfless in a way that I'm not sure that I would be in that situation, and that maybe that's why I feel sort of drawn to him, or I, or I see him as kind of aspirational in that sense. Uh, he also has the best, one of the best uses of the word literally in any movie. Uh, they discuss going to the the other Icarus project or the other Icarus ships. and then he's like, "Wait, w- you're to be clear, like we're not doing this, right?" This. And that's when he explains the mission. It's a kind of a bit of exposition, but he goes like, uh, you know, if the sun dies, we die. Everything dies. There's literally nothing more important than that. <laughs> yeah, I just love that line so much because I cannot think of any usage of that word in the movie that's that was more that was a more correct use of that word. But uh, but yeah, that aside, I think I love the way he. You know, as we said, he ends up being this very selfless dude. You know, he's ready to sacrifice himself. He's ready to sacrifice anything for to complete this mission. But uh, at the same time, I I love the way the movie also doesn't sugarcoat the real implications of this. I think he is one of the more brutal death scenes, I would say. At least one of the more... You know, it's not like I'm going... I did my heroic thing. Now I'm just going to get washed up in the sunlight. You know, he... He is down there in the in the cooling tank. He has his his leg stuck, and he's freezing, and he's, he's his death is like a slow and a painful one. And you know he knows it. You know he's yeah. like squirming a little bit. And yeah, I don't know. There's something about that that's always affected me for some reason. And I think it's because of that that he that he on the one hand has that very self-sacrificial attitude, but at the same time that it also. Uh, we also get to see what that ultimately costs him which in hindsight all all only makes that self-sacrificial attitude feel even more earned maybe or in some way you know that depicts that he was truly willing not just to like sacrifice himself but also to suffer for what he believed in and so yeah that's i don't know he's just um he's in some ways just the ultimate pragmatic dude who knows who, who completely takes himself out of an equation when he's assessing like risk and meaning and uh, when he's the way he navigates that mission is completely without or at least it seems completely without self-regard and uh, right or without regard for his own life yeah
1: I think you're right but I also would say like I'm curious about what distinguishes him from Kappa who also has this mm. very like utilitarian let's crunch the numbers, figure out what the best move is and just do that. And there's a slight difference between them. And I think, you know, to me, my perception is kind of that Mace, like there's something about that, that move of sacrificing himself that is deeply meaningful to Mace in and of itself. Like he's like, he's like, I've got to do it, but you know what, this is what we have to do. Let's just go in there. Whereas Kappa, to me, is also willing to kind of like sacrifice himself. But it feels a little different to me where he's just like, well, this is just what has to be done. It's, it doesn't necessarily like, you know, he sees the beauty in it or he. it's not like he denies the meaning in it, but he's not like chasing that sacrifice necessarily for its own sake. He's like completely mm-hmm. in the realm of, I just want this certain outcome to happen. And whether I pull it off, through sacrifice, or live, or survive, or die, or somebody else does it, or whatever, is like completely unimportant to me. The only thing that matters is that it it happens. I see a slight differentiation there.
0: Yeah, I think they just also just have a very different personality in right. terms yeah, of yeah. how they handle their own emotions, uh, which gives them a lot of texture. Even though they them being roughly on the same page philosophically. Um, right. Because I love the way that you know they they struggle throughout the movie, but they also have that nice little moment where they make up with each other, or and they make it right. right. <laughs> Maze comes in like a, yeah. y- y- they start apologizing to each other, and then the, uh, Kappa interrupts Maze when he says like, "Okay, let me do the apology," and then it falls silent, and Kappa's like, uh, that was it." Yeah, and Maze's like, "Yeah, <laughs> consider it accepted." <laughs> There's something about. Kappa that he's mission-oriented, obviously, but he's also is I think he also has a sort of curiosity towards the the physics of what will happen at the end right. of the journey, just and yeah. the kind of beauty that he's gonna witness something that's completely outside of any rational model, because you know, we go through the mission at some point or through the simulation of the explosion, which clearly states that at some point the simulation ends because there's not enough data to calculate what's going to happen. And that's when Kappa, I think, explains that, you know, there's going to be a literal bending of time and space. And I think there's to him a more, you know, kind of the more the romantic scientist element where he's uh, also driven by that curiosity to experience something that's outside any models that humans have been able to come up with up until that point, whereas... I feel like Mace in comparison to that is more like the sort of the more the soldier on the ground. Yes, he's yeah, just, yeah. That's a great way of putting he's it. He's just go. He's, he's going for the mission or that, that's all that matters to him and anything else that's byproduct. He doesn't feel like, at least to me, he doesn't feel like someone who has that romantic connection to the sun. To him, it's just there's a task that needs to be done and I'm taking my ego out of it and I'm doing everything yeah. I can to commit myself to that i always found both characters to be very compelling i actually like all of the characters in this movie <laughs> in, in their own little way i think you know there's also um corazon the michelle joe's character yeah the the botanist i think just one of the many lives of evelyn wong yeah. split
1: off into the multiverse <laughs> this is just exactly. the universe where yeah she lives
0: out baseball botanist. Space botanist, yeah. <laughs> but I love her character for having really this appreciation of the life that's granted by the sun. Yeah. Uh, I actually think Cassie's character is on, on rewatching it, she feels more of, slightly weaker than the other ones. She's kind of there,
1: I thought, like, as the, she wears a little cross, and she's kind of the stand-in for I'm trying to think of what the counter to the utilitarian perspective, which is like like the calculation between saving all of humanity and saving mm-hmm. one person's life is very easy in a utilitarian view. Yeah. You know, you just crunch the numbers and you're like, okay, it's fine to kill this person. And she's the one who's kind of standing in there going, like, hey, let's maybe not, you know, or like maybe we should try, maybe we should, maybe it would be wrong to kill that person, even in this instance, which mm-hmm. I appreciate that somebody's there, like, kind of giving a voice to that philosophy you know because i am not like strictly utilitarian so i think there's there's an interesting argument to be had between the perspectives but in this case it just ends up kind of falling so flat because yeah in terms of like if you're if you're going to make an ideally utilitarian argument or like set up a thought experiment where like a utilitarian answer is like easily the correct answer this is this is the one it's like all of humanity versus one human's life and it's pretty unambiguously like a trade-off so you kind of just have to to trolley problem the the one guy or like (laughs) you know run him over with the trolley to save nine million grandmas or something back on earth yeah
0: yeah i think it wasn't that scene wasn't so much about her seriously arguing for trey's life instead of for the mission i think she's more of the voice of mercy or of compassion, because obviously we're going in between one life and the literal fate of this solar system. You know, obviously that one life is expendable. But I, I I think that her character was sort of supposed to be this voice that then at least, you know, given this cold hard reality wherein one life doesn't matter, there still is grounds for compassion and at least show you know show a kindness even if the even if the odds or the the world turns out to be cruel in some way or she's the only one who who sheds a tear for him yeah but yeah i think the my main issue with her is that her character just doesn't get as much screen time to really demonstrate her side of the philosophy and maybe that was kind of the point that her aspect of At least what she represents in this discussion, metaphorically now, you know that she's kind of put on the back burner because, in a way, to show that whenever there's a crisis situation like this, that kind of voice tends to be suppressed by other ones, and then it only comes up in a situation like that where it, the absence of it would just be total cruelty. Right. Right. I did really like that discussion, and I think in general the way this movie presents arguments and makes discussions is one that i have also always found really enjoyable because maybe going back to the the premise of the movie that we haven't directly talked about talked about yeah we open with this prologue where kappa explains that the sun is dying mankind faces extinction and we have this crew of astronauts that's going with this big bomb pretty much every bomb collected or you know any all the the materials that were uh, harvested from earth used to create this one bomb that's going to be set off in the sun and that's going to create a star within a star supposedly and that's going to reignite the sun i don't know what the probability of a premise like that is like does does it make sense is it complete gibberish i never really cared about it you know for me if the movie opens with something like that you know this is the premise the, this is the kind of suspension of disbelief that's going to be necessary to right. for the rest of the story you know you know I, i'm fine with it yeah. the story kind of starts off with them being 24 hours away from arriving in the dead zone which is the point past which uh, there's no more communication back home and so they'll be totally on their own when they en- enter that the first significant event that happens is that they catch the signal of the previous mission that went that was sent a couple of years back but that wasn't successful and so that's what starts like that's the first potential fork in the road that's going to lead to a change in the plot or the change in the expected mission i don't know about you but i just love the way that whole conversation played out we have mace there with explaining how the importance of the mission that there's no way in hell they're gonna deviate from it and convincingly so but then i love the way searle as the ship's uh psychologist very gently almost maneuvers into that and he kind of maneuvers around mace's high intensity or like higher emotionality to really make a pretty reasonable point given the situation you know he argues that the the way the bomb works is entirely theoretical and then he ultimately ends up arguing that maybe it's better to have two last chances than one and yeah again i don't know about you but i just love the way that that the movie really takes you along with the kind of deliberations behind what yeah behind the course of the plot essentially in a way that you, at least for me, I, I was like, okay, you know, maybe it's a bad idea. Maybe it's a good idea. I can kind of see the arguments and I'm on board for whatever happens next. And then, uh, yeah, there's obviously human failure coming up later. Right. But uh, I don't know if you want to uh, add something to this or...
1: No, no, I the, the way that unfolded, I enjoyed because you, Mace kind of states his thing and you're kind of like, yeah he's right. And then Cyril makes his counterpoint and Mm -hmm. you're kind of like, Ooh, that is actually a good counterpoint. Okay. We need to consider this. And then the way it just kind of like slowly pulls you into like, all right, now Kappa is the one who's going to have to make this decision. The way that maneuver is pulled off works, works very nicely. And I love, I love that they also don't immediately like default to, we're, we're taking a vote where, you know, where everybody has their voice. It's like it feels more organic in how there's several different pro, like scenes in this movie where as a group, people are making decisions. And it felt like it explored the different ways that that happens really well and thoroughly in a way that feels, you know, believable to the characters. I think mm. I think it's a really strong movie in that regard. Like when I say yeah. it's messy, I think none of the mess is really in how, like, the interpersonal mechanics are are written at all. Um, I think, like, in terms of the actual dialogue between characters, how characters are in getting into conflict and resolving it, it works. That's one of the things it's doing best. So, yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that.
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure if I had a much bigger point to make with that, except for that I wanted to say that I, that's something that I really enjoy in science fiction movies in general, which... Because whereas I think a lot of films tend to look down upon heavy debating discussions and especially if they feel kind of exposition-y. Right. Especially with science fiction movies, I always love when there's actual discussions being held on screen instead of having just this quick back and forth and then have like this uh, half-baked reason to progress the plot instead of this more deliberate and more measured approach that really brings you into the headspace of the characters and as you said it also it also reveals a lot about the characters in just a very little space you know you don't have to do a lot of character moments quote-unquote when you can just show character through how they behave themselves or how they carry themselves in a discussion or in a dialogue and yeah that's something that i really enjoyed maybe also i like the way it kind of ended up that no or it kind of, that whole discussion ended to a or ended with a conclusion where, no matter how you look at it, you still end up in uncertainty. And I think there's a thematic significance there where no matter how you you know uh, position ourselves, there's no certainty at the end of it. There's there's always going to be a bit of a leap of leap of faith, no matter what we do, right. and um, no matter how certain we feel about some. Uh, choice or decision there might still be some uh, uncertainty at the end of it hidden in uh, the details so to say but yeah and from there we kind of move on to i think the second big event that really uh, upsets the success rate of the mission which is that trey uh, benedict Wong's character he makes a calculation error when he adjusts the the course of the ship and then he forgets to alter the angles of the shield and that leads to a whole sequence uh which also introduces you know one of the best soundtracks of any movie which has been used a lot in trailers and stuff and you know i can see why it's uh but yeah that after that whole sequence you know the whole mission is kind of flipped on its head and uh the captain dies they lose their oxygen I think uh, that's also what happened yeah they lose the oxygen or the the oxygen garden so at that point you know the mission goes from we're gonna we you know there's a small chance we're gonna make it and then make it back home and it changes that into okay we are at least now certainly gonna die you know this is now a one-way trip and yeah I, I love the way that yeah, I was going to say subtly, but it's not such a subtle escalation. But it's, it, it, it doesn't feel like a big shift at first. Whereas, you know, it, it already already feels like the mission is kind of desperate. There's right. still a, a difference in, you know, believing. I think Cassie at one point says, it says this even. That, you know, there's one thing in believing you might or worrying about. Maybe not returning home and between knowing you're definitely not gonna gonna right. return yeah and that's something that really interested me because that really brings the question of mortality into the whole thematic space where characters are now just you know we have we we talked about the sun as being this force of you know almost this godlike force you know it's it's gonna it, it lived way before us it's gonna live way after us it's too big for us to comprehend and now we are really you know with these characters now being on a suicide mission it's we really see their mortality being contrasted in with this against this force now and uh yeah i don't know um, something about that that just uh i found very compelling about the way that sort of changes the characters also and the way they each react in their own way. We've talked about this earlier, so I'm yeah. going to skip, uh, you know, some, uh, uh, the way that Harvey still acts kind of cowardly, even though he knows right. they're all going to die probably, and but yeah. he just doesn't want to be the next one. or <laughs> He doesn't want to be the uh, first to go. Or like, or <laughs> yeah. just in that moment, like
1: actually facing like a decision where it's like, you know, it's one thing to be like, okay, I know I'm going to die now in the future in a, in a way that's out of my control and it's another thing to be like i'm making the conscious choice now mm-hmm. to do something that's going to directly lead to my to my
0: death and he's unwilling to kind of take that that leap i think that's the point i was kind of struggling to make that kind of distinction between mortality as this abstract concept right. that we know that's a part of being a human yeah. being or, or what it means to be a human being and But at the same time, also being aware of mortality conceptually is not the same as facing it directly. And I think that's something that this movie also deals with in an interesting way. But yeah, and then we, I think that's when we get to uh, Pinbacker also. Yeah, once, once they kind of
1: reach Icarus 1, they go in, they look around.
0: They even make a joke about not splitting up because, and then... Uh, yeah, there's like an say, alien. Oh, that's not a good idea. And then there go. But you think there's going to be an alien <laughs> picking us off one by one?
1: Searle <laughs> makes his uh, stardust to stardust comment in there at some point. Yeah, they start kind of accepting this, like you know, mm-hmm. the, this impending doom. This weird other character shows up. We don't find out about him. I forget if he starts picking people off on Icarus one or is it only after he sneaks only
0: in. after he, cause he sneaks right, right. back yes, and then yeah, he breaks yeah. the airlock and that's when that's right. the other four, they end up being trapped there. And that's uh, when we get that whole sequence,
1: the sequence where Harvey freezes in space and then hmm. the shot, I mean, it's, it's like morbid and dark, but the shot where he's like flying out across and he's a little dot. And then he just like, breaks into the sunlight and just like yeah instantly dissolves
0: like a little fart <laughs> yeah it was yeah.
1: a a great sequence it's one of those moments that you were kind of describing earlier where mm-hmm. like the constant never ending sort of like power of the sun is just like a constant
0: presence in this mm-hmm. movie I also want to mention that just before that, that moment, you know, we talked about the characters earlier and the different paths towards the same virtues. And I think that's also a sequence that really beautifully shows, you know, you have that moment where Kappa is in the suit, uh, you know, Harvey is initially against it. And then, you know, he kind of comes around to, okay, Kappa's in the suit, we're going to jump with him. And then they realized someone has to stay back and manually operate the airlock or something. And then Harvey's like, oh... You're you're all thinking, I I get it. You're you're all thinking that should be me. And I love the way Searle steps up and he just calmly states, like, uh, no, Harvey, you know, it's me. Because I like the way that in that attitude or in that moment, he has basically the same attitude that Mace has when it comes to recognizing his priority within the group, even though, you know, as we talked about earlier, they both have very dispositions when it comes to their spirituality, I guess. But I love the way they sort of connect there in the end, where they both. Display that same kind of humility that gives them the courage, or the drive to, to sacrifice themselves for the greater good. Basically, right. Yeah.
1: Sarah also was looking for his opportunity to, to immolate himself in the uh, <laughs> yeah, with sunshine, in that scene, which is, which is a great one as well. He sort of meets the end that. Yeah. It feels like he's kind of been like wanting this whole time, like to really just see what this thing is. It's interesting if you're thinking about this in terms of mortality and how different people face mortality because people have different approaches to death or feel different ways about it. And it's like you have some people who will really approach it with a Harvey-like attitude where they're like, you know, there's some people Mm -hmm. who want to meet that in some sort of meaningful way, like sort of mace And then there's like Cyril who seems like he just wants to be as open as possible to the experience itself, like to just feeling what that feels like uh, even if that's, that's what, you know, Mm -hmm. destroys him in that moment.
0: Yeah. I was going to say as a final note there that, that also, there's a nice contrast in the way that Shaw goes out on his own terms. And as you said, with yeah. open eyes, as he kind of wanted to, whereas Harvey then, he his sort of scared, more cowardly attitude also makes him go out, you know, not explicitly, but at least symbolically in a way that, you know, he just kind of bumps and struggles and kicks and screams his way until a death just overtakes him without him having any agency or any comfort in that process, and yeah. uh, that you know, there's, I think, there's definitely a deliberate contrast with Harvey sort of disappearing in the dark and Searle being swallowed by light um, yeah. at the end there, almost simultaneously. Yeah, but yeah, that's uh, then we get Pinbacker back on the ship. One of the more controversial turns in the story, I think. Uh, even though I love his introduction, he has he has he has some great monologues throughout uh, the the third act. Um, I do really like the, you know, I, or I get what his character was supposed to do in this story. Like I, I see where he fits in thematically and he kind of reminded me of the, in some way of the Dr. Man character in Interstellar, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of third act human obstacle to what would otherwise be the more environmental struggle of the characters. But yeah, especially now in hindsight, I I, I do feel like it becomes too much of a slasher film where he even seems to have like superhuman strength for some reason towards (laughs) the end there. And, you know, I wouldn't have erased or I wouldn't have wanted him entirely gone from the movie because I do like, you know, as I said, I like his he has some great dialogue. He's performed pretty great, I think, also by uh, Mark Strong. But I wish his character had less of an impact on the course of the climax of the movie. Uh, I wish it had been more like Interstellar where he forms a brief obstacle, but then we return with like full focus on the environmental struggle and the struggle against the cosmos. Yeah. Because now, I yeah. don't know, it, it just plays out too long and he's there like way until the very end and that's when... The camera you know it starts going bonkers as you said uh you kind of enjoyed it but for me it, it does i find like the visual intensity becomes slightly too aggressive here with the camera shakes and the distorted angles and the defocus and the, the quick cutting it just becomes i don't know it becomes a little overwhelming for me
1: the chaos at the end just becomes too much and i think his character thematically the, the muddies the water a little bit. Like I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the implications are. You know, I think there's interesting stuff where what we talked about earlier where he's kind of like saying like, hey, we can't meddle with sort of God or fate or whatever in this, you know, the mm-hmm. sun dying is just sort of like the natural course of things. And we should not be meddling with that essentially it's kind of the position he's operating from and then he's trying to sabotage things.
0: Yeah. I think he's just a that token of religious grandiosity where he kind of denies the literal reality of things to impose his own narrative of it. You know, it's I don't know if I can think of a an apt comparison. You know, something like let's say some people are warning you know There's scientists are warning for a volcanic eruption you know that's data that's measuring the objective activity of the volcano but then there's some priest that says oh no i know what the will of god is i know everything's going to be fine and becomes really aggressive about it and or
1: or in this case it's more like he's saying yeah the volcano exploding is part of the will of god so we shouldn't we shouldn't try to stop it anyway. We just need to accept our fate dying at, this, yeah. at the hands of this volcano. The irony kind of there being like, if it's truly the will of God, you're not going to stop him anyway, you know, theoretically. So like a man having to fight for what he thinks yeah. is like the will of God is kind of
0: irrational in a sense. He kind of assumes like by, if the will of God is one thing, he essentially takes away human freedom and agency. But then at the same time, he is imposing his own agency to make sure that whatever he thinks is the will of God does in fact happen without the agency of others being able to intervene.
1: The way I read it was a little bit more, I think there's maybe some commentary on religious stuff there, but also like to me watching it the first time I was just like, this guy just ate too much sun. He like, you know, like (laughs) went insane and just like something about being near this space uh, and this is where it kind of gets like Alex Garlandy towards the end. And th- that was kind of what I liked about it, where it like feels like they almost cross over this threshold and things start just getting weirder. And there's sort of like an incomprehensibility that enters into the space. And what's happening with his character is kind of unknowable and sort of in the same way. I don't know. It just starts getting strange and like incomprehensible, I guess, is a good way of putting it. That was what I liked about it in the sense that, like, as things start to disintegrate towards the end there, I was less sure of what was really happening and how and why. I like how that sort of represents this idea of, like, you're nearing something that that you know you have to do, but space and time are sort of bending as you're doing that. And your ability to understand what's happening is sort of disintegrating as you're doing that. But ultimately, I think, like, if that's what they were going for in this movie, I think that particular idea is better explored in something like Annihilation, like pulls that specific mm. like incomprehensibility off a little bit better. But I like that sort of thing anyway. So I was having fun yep. with it. Like the movie is definitely doing one kind of thing for like a while. And then all of a sudden it's like. No, we're gonna we're gonna go this way and do this other thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the problem is what it's doing necessarily. So much, at least for me, as it almost gets messy. On one hand, it's incomprehensible in a way that I like. There was moments of that that I like, but then there was other bits like when Kappa gets onto the bomb. I like completely had lost track of where Pinbacker and Rose and Cassie were, and. Yeah, and then yeah. they show back up and I was like, I thought they had, I thought something had already happened to them. I was confused at that point in a way that also felt mm. like I wasn't supposed to be. Um, so I don't know if I missed some details or something, but.
0: Yeah, that final confrontation plays out strangely. I I love the way you know, that jump from the ship to the bomb that Kappa makes, That yeah. you know, where we have the the soundtrack again, climaxing. I feel like that's the the big, like the interstellar shot where they go into the black hole or slingshot out of it. But yeah, after that, I wish there would have been more of a character moment or at least maybe between Cassie or Cassie and uh, Kappa or just Kappa alone instead of having this final, the final few minutes of the movie still being this physical struggle with the bad guy. And I feel like that's kind of also a missed opportunity where Cassie could have had like one final more of a character moment instead of her just being the one that does some stabbing and then dies herself. Right. The actual ending then, you know, the, the bomb, you know, the geography of it kind of looks strangely. And I think at that point also the, the whole gravity and stuff is shifting around, but Kappa sets off the bomb successfully. We get this really beautiful ending, which is one of my favorite visual sequences in any movie, Probably. Kind of the whole, the chaos takes, makes way for more ambient, quieter music. Uh, We get this moment of stillness. And then instead of having this big, giant bang, essentially as an ending, it kind of softly fades into through white, you know, through light. Fade to white instead of a fade to black. Back to Earth, where we now see the sun shining a little bit brighter over a frozen world so it is a success i guess that's the implication we then get one of the worst needle drops to the credit in (laughs) any movie yeah i was so confused (laughs) i didn't even like i i knew it was there but for some reason i keep blocking that out of my mind it's a weird choice (laughs) yeah I, i dislike when movies do that when they feel like the moment the credits hit like the people aren't still in the emotion that they were experiencing during the conclusion like right. I, I cannot understand why you would go for something that's so jarring but uh, yeah it was 2007 so yeah <laughs> different times i guess mm-hmm. i love the ending uh, aside from the, the, the cut to credits but uh, yeah
1: i love the subtle sort of the subtlety of the back on earth moment uh you could have had this big like Climactic, like, you, you know, soaring mm-hmm. music and like the sun doing something crazy. But it just kind of goes from like, ooh, it's it's a little what looks like a hazy, foggy day to like oh, you just turn the brightness slider up a little bit. The softness mm-hmm. of that I love because it also kind of like drives, you know, they've been facing this thing that for this entire movie has been like this fireball about to like eat them alive. And then mm. it just recontextualizes it from our own perspective where it's like, oh, there's this thing that is much more manageable to us. But also like if you just dimmed it a little bit permanently, it would have massive you know, repercussions mm. on our ability to, to survive. There's something about that relationship at the end and grounding us back in like our own relationship to the sun that I really liked and just kind of the subtlety yeah. of that.
0: Definitely, uh, yeah, definitely invokes a kind of appreciation that the sort of more the, uh, the kind of the astrological or astronomical, which is the, the which is the real science one, Astro- astronomy. Astronomy, yeah. yeah, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> Astrology is the uh, one you got to look yeah, up for. Yeah, <laughs> the the horoscope one. It <laughs> yeah. feels like the Carl Sagan type appreciation where you kind of zoom out all the way into the cosmos, see all the impossible mathematical odds that have led to things being exactly the way they are and then zooming all the way back into what that means for us that all all those giant endless big forces came together in a way that allowed us to stay you know just with the sun just perfectly shining on our little blue dot in a way that we could you know play out this whole human drama and uh, i don't know it's just an It's it's a weirdly comforting perspective. Uh, I don't know if comfort is the right, uh, at least it's humbling, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. I do have one final question before we uh, wrap up. Going back to the sort of metaphor of the sun as being this source of worship, maybe even being a symbolical stand in for God or some kind of higher divine being. What does this movie say thematically about the idea of human beings going in and reigniting that force that has, before the events of the film at least, been dimmed to the point where it threatens our existence?
1: That's interesting. I didn't I didn't really think about it in those terms.
0: I'm not sure if it's intent to, because the premise feels so, it's almost presented to you so casually at the beginning. Right. You know, oh, the sun is dying. We're going to yeah, boot yeah. it back up. But, you know, uh, yeah. I wonder if there's a thematic relevance there that goes overlooked because of the way you almost take that premise for granted. I would have to think about that a little bit more. The The connection my
1: brain immediately wants mm-hmm. to make is like the act of doing that requires some kind of act of faith. Like these characters have to sacrifice themselves and do something in order to make it in there. And they have to do so not knowing whether that's really going to accomplish that goal and I think there's something kind of profound in that like any sort of act of mm-hmm. faith that we make as humans I think you know by definition being an act of faith whether it's a religious act of faith or or not is one that we have to do not knowing what the outcome of that act of faith will be like mm-hmm. that you know to me that's kind of what what makes it an act of faith so I think there's something interesting there where like yeah. there are things we have to do as humans increasingly it kind of feels like this when we look towards the future you can look towards the future in religious terms you can look towards the future in scientific terms and see obstacles that need to be overcome or whatever in any case however you look at it there's like things that we have to do in our lives now or a stance we have to take or something like that the lives we're living now we can't know what the impact of that is going to be on people who live 400 years after us or even, you know, hundred years mm-hmm. after us. And so we have to make all these decisions about what do we do? How do we live? What are the implications of this? How do we avert this crisis, you know, that we might be coming in the future or something and just like believe that like, oh, doing this thing is going to lead to this outcome. And there's like There's a sense in which this is getting really speculative. There's a sense Mm -hmm. in which that move itself, like that ability to engage in doing something, not knowing what the outcome will be, but with the hope and the faith of a certain outcome is like very integral to sort of like human life to begin with. You know, like that's, that's part of the fuel that,
0: allows us to operate at all i i I agree that i think there's a large part that says something about you know the movie obviously on more than one occasion from whatever angle uh spiritual or non-spiritual or you know physical or religious emphasizes some kind of fundamental uncertainty at the heart of things and that no matter what it's going to take a leap of faith in order to act towards it um in some way or another Uh, you know the movie ends almost with that literal leap of faith from kappa to uh, from the ship to the bomb that's disconnected and i think at the same time it also you know it clearly says something about the way we almost embody that uncertainty within ourselves do we use it as to humble our character or to like inflate it into something grandiose or self-important or towards something that sees itself as part of a bigger whole, just you know, one small, small part of the greater good. But yeah, what that says about the idea of reigniting a dying sun, I asked the question without having thought about the <laughs> possible answer myself. <laughs> I haven't thought about it too much because yeah. it feels like it's first and foremost a, almost like the plot mechanic or just the excuse to explore what the story becomes. Along the way, instead of what yeah. the premise and the outcome of it really mean on it on their own. Yeah, it's hard to tie
1: an implication to the dying sun, because in theory, it's like mm-hmm. just something that's happening. It's not like the sun is dying because something that the humans have done or we don't we don't know much about the
0: scenario. We don't know a lot about the society they left behind. So, yeah. I want to say The Dying sun is obviously, you can see it, read maybe into it the loss of faith, maybe. Right. Although I wouldn't necessarily say it's an argument for a loss of religion in a growingly secular world, but more maybe of a loss of faith in a more general sense, a loss of hope, a loss of will to believe in that good things will happen in the future and then to ignite that, it meant that display of sacrifice and courage and determination. And that's, in the end, what ignites it back into something that everyone on Earth can uh, draw hope from. You know, right. knowing that all these astronauts went on this mission, uh, went through the things that they went through, and then ended up sacrificing themselves in that process, all based on this leap of faith, basically, all based on not knowing that it would even work you know so yeah there's i think a a feeling of hope then in that reignition that spreads out back yeah. to earth to inspire everyone who's still back home alex
1: garland is someone who if you look at his work together to me seems i think he's talked about being an atheist i don't remember exactly but he's pretty clearly like you know i think his beliefs are fairly like scientific materialism, something along those lines, or more or less. But he's also Mm. really deeply interested in portraying the experience of life with sort of a mystical tone. Like he wants to take things that Mm. are like, this is just science or material or whatever, but engaging with that feels like this religious experience to the characters in his story. Uh, and that's kind of the way he's presenting that. You could kind of see it through that lens of like a sense of religious awe dying out as we move into a time where, you know, we're in a secular age, as tr- as Charles Taylor would put it, or, or you know, we're post a post Nietzsche world. Science is the dominant worldview. Alex Garland kind of with this movie or any um, any others are like, but what if within even that there is this like deeper, more profound experience that you could have, you know, that is kind of almost mystical in, in a sense. Uh, and I think you see that really clearly, like at the end of this movie, it's like it, like uh Kappa is being like consumed by the sun. It's like, he slows everything down to this sort of infinite moment. And it, it takes on this, like this like profound, You know, it's not just a guy being eaten by the sun. It's like the Mm -hmm. way it's presented is, is, has almost this like deep, intimate, like, you know, I don't know how you would even describe it, but like the experience is being presented in, in a kind of like a mystical way. That's how, you know, it, it seems to me.
0: It's, it's almost like the kind of marriage between the sun and humanity that Searle was hoping for. Right where instead of one destroying the other it feels like a more mutual coming together a sort of right you know a more friendly compassionate uh, synchronicity I guess
1: the you know the language that the sun knows is heat and fire so if we go mm-hmm. we go in there and we drop a bomb, it loves it it's <laughs> like <laughs> you're, now you're speaking my language <laughs>
0: I'm sure that's what they were going for yeah. Thank you all for listening, if you enjoy the show and want to help us keep it going, be sure to follow us on our creator-owned streaming service, Nebula. Cinema of Meaning is a Nebula original show, meaning that here you can experience our podcast ad-free, listen to all of our episodes a week early, and get instant access to all of our monthly bonus episodes. Last month, that was David Fincher's Fight Club. Before that, we've also covered Babylon, Avatar The Way of Water, the new All Quiet on the Western Front, Alien Covenant, DRIVE, and many others, so you're really getting a whole new catalog of episodes. You can sign up directly at our Nebula page, that's nebula.tv slash cinemaofmeaning, or just follow the link in the show notes, and we'll see you again next time.